in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There, our Genesis foundation sprang from the will and word of the great I Am. Woven deep into these foundations are rich truths of God and man, sin and righteousness, life and death, and everything else of ultimate consequence. What God started in Genesis is now settled and completed in Christ Jesus. We are continuing in our Genesis series. We are in Genesis chapter two this week. Now we're gonna be covering 22 verses or one verses, how's math work? So 20, uh, 20 something verses and uh, going over, so there's a lot in there. Right? There's a lot. There's not going to be time for us to dig into every last detail. So I apologize if we don't cover something that is near and dear to you in this narrative. Uh, there's a lot going on, and we're going to uh, focus on uh, what I believe to be the, um, the most important aspect of Genesis 2, which is in this uh, Genesis of mankind, and really looking at the first wedding, the first man and wife. And uh, we see the first um, not necessarily, we don't see the first proposal, but we see the first engagement and wedding somehow in there, you know, um, mixed together. But, you know, proposals and, and those, um, those things have gotten so important to us today. Um, I don't know if it was because just the fact that we have a camera in our pockets all the time, we're so used to being able to capture everything on video that now we have people hiding in bushes and in cars and on rooftops to record the moment in which the proposal happens. Praying that it goes well. <laughs> because we want to be able to pull that back out and show kids and grandkids and, what, and whoever else over the years. Um, those stories have always been somewhat important, at least in, the, in recent history. I remember um, when I was single and uh, soon to be engaged, I heard from some saying, now hold on. Let's take some time to think about this proposal because she's going to tell this story the rest of your lives. Yeah, no pressure, right? Because, because if it falls flat on its face, that's the story you're gonna be telling the rest of your lives. Now, I don't have time to tell you the full story of, um, of how I proposed to my wife. I think it's a good one, personally. But, uh, and she does too, so that's nice. Um, <laughs> I'm, gonna, um, I'm gonna take a page out of uh, Russell's playbook from the Beyond the Notes last week, um, although admittingly I told him it was a cop-out to tell a personal story on the Beyond the Notes, but then, I, but then I'm going to copy him and do the exact same thing, and uh, we'll, we'll look at some of the, the, uh, uh, the specialness of humankind, but also I'll, I'll have the time to, to tell you the, the full story of, of how I proposed, and you can tell me whether or not you think it was a good one, I guess. But this is the story that we see in this narrative. We see the setting laid out of what's about to happen, and then we see the need for a helper, and then the solution to that problem. And so let's take a look, Genesis chapter two, starting in verse four. And first of all, we're gonna look at just verse four, because we need to, to notice something. It says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the, the earth and the heavens. Now, the first point in your outline is the toledot. You might be wondering, what in the world does that word mean? Well, it's not English. <laughs> it 
It is a, um, it's a Hebrew word, toledot, and it's the one that's translated as generations in our passage. And it's, it's something that we see becomes the pattern in Genesis. This is the first of 10 toledots. And they, they're gonna put it up on the screen so you can kind of see them as a whole and kind of see where, what we're working with here is that there are a, a series of toledots that work through the structure of the rest of Genesis once you get past Genesis chapter one. Yet there's a difference about this one. It's not the generations of a person, at least not in name within that sentence. And so some have taken this along with the way that God is named in this verse and combined it with, with other um, theories about, um, about textual criticism and the documentary hypothesis um, that, uh, that Pastor Russell um, did away with in the, in the previous weeks. And you can go, go back and, and hear what he had to say about that. But taking these motivations... There's a desire to take this verse, split it, and apply part of it to the, what just said, was said before it and apply part and move forward beyond it. And yet that would change this toledot compared to all the other ones. That's always an introduction to the next section. And so this is the first instance we see in, in this passage in which it can be overthought. And there can be a, a flawed view of something creating a necessity that's not actually there. It makes all the sense in the world that this actually is the introduction to this passage, though a little bit different. But what else are you gonna say about the first person? There was no one before him to say the generations of Adam's father or mother. He's the first one and he's made of Earth. And so in a sense, it's not that odd to see this be the generations of the heavens and the earth. And then even switched later on in that verse to say, the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Because we're talking about the creation that came out of the earth. The, namely Adam and then Eve. And so we have this toledot in verse four that transition, transitions us into the next section of Genesis. Let's take a look at this next section. We're gonna look at the setting of this wedding. In verses five through 14, starting in verse five, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering, watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is, one, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and, and onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. We see the setting laid out here of what's about to transpire. 
And we come to this, this next point of criticism that some have with this scripture. That the argument is made that this is a separate story of creation that actually stands in conflict with the first chapter. That because there's a reference to vegetation being created and animals being brought before Adam soon, who were already formed, that somehow it's, it's taken the days and it's twisted them and changed it into something else and we can't consider this to be what it is, which is a zooming in on day six. It's simply not necessary to claim that this is a separate story of creation. It does not stand in conflict with what came before it. When you zoom in, you provide further detail. You look a little bit closer at what's going on. And just because God on day three creates vegetation the world over does not mean that he can't create a garden in a specific portion of the earth. That's what we see. That there was a, a portion of land that God had not done anything with yet. He hadn't sent rain and he hadn't put in a gardener because this garden needed a gardener. And so I don't know how many of y'all are, are gardeners. I am far from a gardener. I have no desire to garden. I don't even desire to take care of my front yard. I, I, I count it as a blessing of God that my HOA includes the, tear, the care of my front yard. And so I'm far from a gardener, and yet I understand the concept that there is creation and there can be nature and plants in a place where there is no gardener, and then there is a different type of area where someone is actually taking care of it. And that's the distinction that we see here. It's not a, a twisting or a, a rewriting of the creation narrative, but simply a zooming in on the day of creating mankind on day six. We also see trees and rivers, lots of trees and at least four rivers. <laughs> Going back to Genesis 1.29 from last week, it says, and God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And our passage today in verse nine says that every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food and yet there's two other trees that I think is, it's fair to say are potentially seedless trees, distinctively different from all the other trees in creation who, as we would expect, to multiply and through that seed make more trees. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil have no reason to multiply. There's probably a distinction being made very, right there in our, in our verse of, of, of the, the natural tree that will continue to go on versus these specific trees that are only found in the garden. Trees with a, a specific purpose. And there's rivers. Now, unless you think you're in the National Treasure Part 3 or something, and you're gonna be able to, to distinguish exactly where these rivers are and go find the garden yourself, there's not really much for us to, <laughs> to pursue here. There were rivers. They were real. Rivers bring forth life. They were part of the beauty of creation in this garden. Are they still there? Do we know where they are? I don't know. But that's part of the setting that we're, we're placed into here. But 
the, the main chunk that I want us to look at today, the genesis of mankind. We see God continue in this day six of creation. Looking at verses 15 through 17, this next paragraph here. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. We see first there's a commission. Man is given a commission. Adam is given a commission to work and keep the garden. It's important for us to notice that because it's important for us to know in our lives that work is not a result of the fall. You don't work because of sinfulness. Work exists pre-fall. It's part of our purpose. We do experience fulfillment in our work and we're supposed to, especially as we work for the glory of God. Now yes, rest and leisure are important as, as well, but in their own place, in their own way. But we have to guard against thinking like an American versus like a Christian. They're not always in line with each other. The common approach to life in our country right now is to work so that we don't have to work anymore. Put in your time, put in your work so that one day in the future, if you live long enough and you prosper enough, you'll have your time where you won't have to work and it's all about just sitting back and relaxing and doing nothing. That is so far from a biblical concept. <laughs> Now, I'm not saying that your career can't change or come to an end. But this concept, this idea of idolizing a rest and leisure portion of life in the future where we can move past work and attain to that so that it's all about us and our time and all of our desires, that ought not to be in the mind of a Christian. Like I said, you're, what that work is may look different. But we need to understand that work is pre-fall. And it's not something to be worked beyond and get past all of it. It's something through which we glorify God. The second thing that we see here is that he's given a caveat. Don't eat of that tree. He has the freedom to eat freely of any of the other trees. Except for that one, because he also has the ability to obey and disobey this caveat. We'll see more on that next week. But third, we see he's given a compliment. Not with an I, but with an E, a compliment. Let's look back at our scripture, verse 18 through 25. Let's read the remainder of these verses and then we'll break it down. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. 
Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the woman and his wife, sorry, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. He's given a compliment. Now, we don't know exactly what's going through the mind of Adam during this time as, as he's being put into the garden, but God notices that there is a problem. He says that, there, that this solitude is a problem. It's a problem before sin enters as well. It is not good for man to be alone. Like I said, we, we don't know where Adam's mind is. We can kind of see, I think we see some of, of where Adam's mind, mind might be going, but God notices this problem. He establishes there is a problem that needs to be solved. He was not done with his creation of mankind until he made Eve. But he wasn't confused about like making Adam and then going, huh, that's unexpected. Like, there seems to be a problem here. Unless you have some really warped, unbiblical view of God's knowledge of things, we understand from scripture that God knew the end from the beginning. He knew he was gonna create Eve before he created Adam. He knew before he created Earth, he was gonna create you. And so what happens next is a search, but a search not for God's benefit, but for Adam's benefit. It's not fit for him to be alone. And then he embarks on this process and so what's the point <laughs> to this search process? If it's not for God, it must be for Adam. And so what possible benefit could come from this in the life of Adam? And I think there's three things at least that we can identify. First, it establishes dominion. Established dominion. God could have named the creatures and told Adam, he could have given him a picture book and told him and, you know, and labeled it all. It could have been the ABCs and everything if he wanted to, right? And say, now this is an alligator and this, and, and this is a monkey and M is for monkey. He could have done all these things if he wanted to. It wasn't beyond him. He created them. He could name them. But he chooses to let Adam do it. He chooses to bring them before Adam and say, you name this creation. Because he's given dominion over the creation. And naming that creation is an act of authority over that creation. And it established that dominion in a way that wouldn't have happened without him naming those animals. And in the part of that process, we see some other things transpire as well. We also see an established headship in a marriage. Adam was made first. The problem was with Adam not being or the problem was with Adam being alone, he needed a suitable helper. Now the world, especially our current world, hates this concept. <laughs> that there's any headship within a family. And the world is running as fast as they can away from this narrative of truth. And it's working out about as well as, it as every other time. The world runs away from the narrative of truth and God's truth through his scriptures as our families are destroyed. Out of a desire, a misplaced motivation and desire that's felt to bring a unity within a marriage and redefine marriage entirely. And yet we see in our scriptures that there isn't a headship that is established within this very first marriage and every marriage that is supposed to happen after it. 
But let's zoom in a little bit more because um, Paul expounds upon the roles and the expectations on wives and husbands in Ephesians chapter five. And he's thinking about this very first marriage when he's writing this. And so he covers wives first in, in that letter. We'll cover wives first this morning. In Ephesians 5, verse 20, 22, it says this, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, it's not a matter of quality by any stretch. Eve was made from Adam, literally, the same material, (laughs) built out of Adam. And every life after that comes forth from Eve. It's not a matter of quality, it's a matter of order within the family. And it reflects the order within the Godhead, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are all equally God, and yet there's an order to it. This doesn't mean that a husband is to make every single decision in a household. It does mean that a wife is supposed to defer leadership in a household to her husband. With that expectation, choose well. There's a lot on the line. And I've heard from Christian woman after Christian woman after Christian woman, godly women of God have told me over the years that a Christian wife does want her husband to lead. There is a desire to be led well within the way God has created the marriage. And yet all too often, husbands are way too willing to hand over that mantle of leadership. As husbands, we unfortunately sometimes view the leadership of the remote control as a greater importance than the spirituality and the spiritual maturity of our families. And while submitting to your husband and deferring leadership to your husband is a, it's a big ask. I would argue it's, a, it's actually the lesser of the two. And there's more asked of the husband than even of the wife. And husbands, we don't get off easy at all. Take a look back at Ephesians chapter five. As, as Paul continues, he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let's give you to verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. The expectation of a Christian husband is to love sacrificially within that family, just as Christ loved sacrificially every one of us. Loving sacrificially is one of the, the measures in our purpose statement, that as we, as we are discipled and progress in our faith in Christ, we, that should be more and more a characteristic of our lives. That week after week, month after month, year after year, we may, are making progress in loving better, loving more sacrificially. It doesn't matter whether your husband or wife is keeping up their end of the bargain, there is no condition put in these verses for what is expected of you and me. 
Husband, don't make an excuse and say, well, but, I mean, but my wife, I mean, you couldn't live with her. No, no, no. You entered into a covenant and you're expected to love sacrificially and love as Christ loves the church. And wife, I mean, I already said, I mean, you, anyone who's not married in the room, I mean, this is a, a high bar. It should change the way you think of getting married. Realizing that's not just about emotion or just something that, uh, that sounds, sounds great or I don't want to be alone. I just, I, I want somebody else to share life with. No, you are making a commitment to another person. You are being unified and made one flesh with another person and that is not to be taken lightly. I understand completely. In fact, I'm kind of surprised by the divorce rate within the world outside the church. Because honestly, I don't know how any marriage works and sustains and lasts without Christ. I don't get that at all. We're so grounded in selfishness. And I've been married for 15 years and there's not one 24-hour period in which I was conscious that I have lived this out perfectly. My only hope is that, you, is that you put me in a medically induced coma and then maybe I have a chance of doing this perfectly. I do not stand up here as a person who says, I get this right all the time. In fact, today at lunch, husbands and wives, you may need to look at the other one across the table and say, I apologize for not loving you the way that I should. And the response you're probably gonna get is, well, amen to that. <laughs> Your spouse knows. <laughs> we are the least guarded in our lives within our homes. And yet, let me take it one step further. How are we expected to disciple our children well and lead them in a way towards following Christ if we are not loving well in our homes ourselves? We must model loving sacrificially well within our homes in front of our children. They are watching us day after day. It is no small thing to become united with a husband or wife. It is no small thing to become a parent and be tasked with discipling a new life. And we should not think lightly of it. Husbands and wives, it's not a matter of a difference in quality. It's a matter of a difference in order. But the last thing here is it established appreciation. Established appreciation. I've known a lot of guys and I've been a guy for a long time. And one thing I know, we are not the most perceptive of people. Not always. Sometimes we're the last ones to realize something. Especially when it comes to smells. I know husbands, I know I can't be the only one with a wife that walks into the room and goes, what's that smell? And I'm like, I don't know. Probably me. We're not the most perceptive. I think part of this search was for Adam's sake was for him to develop an appreciation for his wife. God takes every other kind that he created and walks them before Adam. Adam names them and there's not one found. 
But yet, look at Adam's words. God, the first father, bringing the first daughter into a marriage and handing her over to her husband, Adam's response is, this at last is bone of my bones. Adam sees everything else and he goes, now this is what I'm talking about when he sees Eve. It's like that day when you're standing at the front of the aisle and your wife comes walking down the aisle. Well, soon to be wife. This is what I'm talking about. Adam developed an appreciation that he wouldn't have had if it was just like that from the beginning. I think that's part of what was established through this search for his sake. But last and not least, there's a formula for the natural order. We're given a formula for the natural order. In verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The directive given before mankind was to go forth, be fruitful and multiply and and, and take dominion. It should not be lost on us that if if another male was created, that task was not gonna be carried out. That part of this natural order involves it being a husband and a wife, a man and a woman to pursue our purpose. That you leave your family and you join into a covenant with someone. You commit your life to them. As wives, you need to knowing you need to understand that you are knowingly committing to submit to that man. So choose well. As men, you need to understand that regardless of the flaws in your wife, you are still expected to love her as your own body and not walk around like a king in a kingdom to be served by everyone else around you. Jesus didn't do that himself. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to sacrifice his life for us. And we must walk forward in that same pattern. But I don't want to end today without speaking to those who are not married. What if you're single? What if you're widowed? What does the Bible have to say to you when we see this clear pattern of how things were going to operate? Well, Paul addresses that as well. You can flip in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I believe it'll be on the screens as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 6. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Skipping ahead to verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things and how to please his wife and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul's not denouncing marriage, (laughs) but he is saying 
that it can be a gift of God to remain single. I'm sure in a room of this many people, there are some in the room who are single later in life. And that does not mean that you are lesser than. In our, in our culture today, marriage is held up, I believe, with a level of idolatry. That you're not fully human. <laughs> you're not fully there. You haven't had someone come and complete you until you're married. And then there's something wrong with you because of that. And after all, I mean, if it's not going so well, just cut and run and find another one. Because after all, I mean, your happiness is what really matters. Paul says, you're not lesser of a person because you're not married. In fact, you may actually have the added benefit of, of being able to have less divided devotion to the Lord. Imagine the difference of someone going into the mission field into an area where they are likely to lose their lives. How much different does a man with no children walk into that place than a man with little children back home? And it's not because you shouldn't care for and consider the interests of your family. Of course you do. And yet, Paul says, I wish more of you were like me, solely devoted to the Lord. And those single amongst us can have a similar impact in this body of Christ as you lay out an example for all of us that are married to see what soul devotion to the Lord looks like. And you can be a motivating factor for us. You can be a challenge to us. We don't look down upon you because you are without a spouse. Nor should we. The desired end whether you're married or not married, should be to glorify God. And we glorify him by loving as he loved. And my hope and prayer is that we can love better this week. Like I said, some of y'all need to apologize over lunch and then over dinner and breakfast tomorrow morning. I am glad we don't have to, we're not expected to list every sin. <laughs> But don't let this be some kind of disjointed, separated idealism that you never seek after. Because if you're seeking after Christ, the fruit of the Spirit should be more and more evident in your life. And you should love more and better over time as you follow him. Doesn't mean it's ever easy. Doesn't mean you ever actually get to the end of that. But we are held to a high standard. Be holy as the Lord your God is holy.